You're listening to Grassroots, www.innovationstudios.com. Welcome to another week in this freezing cold January. It is the 22nd of January. Believe it or not, it's my daughter's birthday today, so happy birthday if you're listening, Jennifer. Back again, um, back in the studio this week after last week's uh, recording from my car, which I'm afraid I have to tell you will happen again. I will be probably recording some more from in my car as we uh, potter about trying to earn whatever we can in these difficult times. But uh, thank you once again to those who subscribed. Thank you once again to those who listened in. And thank you once again to those who sent me your questions. And this week... I have a few to get through, so without further ado, I'm going to crack on with it. Um, So question number one, again, these are all my opinions. I will try and answer the best I can and give you the best feedback I possibly can on your questions. Um, You can ask me anything and I will try and do the best I can with my answer, but let's see how we get on. Question number one, this is from Tom in Shoebury, and Tom in Shoebury says, Hi Marcus, I hope you're well. Is it difficult to snap into and out of character when you're playing in a tribute band? Tom, that's a really good question. Um, the answer is no, not really, not for me. Um, but it took a while. I've I've worked with people over the years who were in tribute bands, and uh, I won't name any names, but we have worked with people who um, wouldn't who who were okay, and then once they were in character, couldn't get back out of character again. We worked with. Uh, a Michael Jackson tribute once at Butlins. And he arrived in the afternoon, and it was obviously it was Michael Jackson tribute. You know, he looked exactly like him, but he kind of came in and introduced himself to us backstage, and we were chatting. And then he, he sort of got into character, and we were talking with him, having a coffee in the afternoon and that. And then he got into character. And once he had finished the show, he just wouldn't come out of character again. And I felt like maybe he was doing it because if he'd have thought that people were maybe... Um, going to meet him for autographs or wanted to meet him and maybe he stayed in character for that but he didn't even do that he just kind of stayed in the character of Michael Jackson and um, there are stories out there that people um, there's a famous Thin Lizzy tribute band and and apparently uh, Phil Linnett's or Lionett's mum went to see it and the guy playing Phil called her mummy all night and was kind of you know because I think people sometimes these people kind of believe that they've got the spirit of that person in them, which, you know, you know what they might have, who am I to just, you know, dispute it. But yeah, I mean, I, I am able to switch on, I think in music, um, no matter what level you're at, you learn how to switch on and switch off in and out of character. You know, that character that gets you on stage and gets the job done because I, you know, um, when I'm mowing my lawn, when I'm doing the boring stuff around the house, when I'm doing the washing up and stuff like that, I'm not the same guy I am on stage. So I have to become that person and, and you have to play that part. So when it came to working in Oasis and playing the part of Noel, yeah, I mean, it doesn't take me long. You know, it's it's really a case of jacket on, wig on, guitar on. And by the time the, the lights go down and, and the, the smoke hits and it's time to go on, from what I remember, having been, you know, locked up for God knows how long now, or locked down, I should say, and locked up makes it sound a lot worse. Um, you you just switch into the character that you play on the stage, really, and, and and it's not really a character. You're only really messing about with, you know, Noelisms 
or you know everybody in the venue knows you're not the real one otherwise it wouldn't have been eight pound a ticket would it would have been like you know 80 pound a ticket at least so uh you know and and so it doesn't take long and, and i very often when the band used to finish the show i'd play the last bit and walk off the stage and then quickly run backstage take my wig off and take my jacket off and go and stand out in the audience just for just for the last minute or so as the band were finishing off because I, I then just it was just just the fun of it really but no i don't i don't stay in character and it doesn't take much to become that i think there is a a, a period of time before you go on where you have to clear your mind and you have to be ready and it's not like you're thinking like somebody else but you're just clearing your mind it's i liken it to maybe a batsman at lords taking an extra long semicircle out to the middle you know, an extra long walk out to the middle just to get accustomed to the light, just take that extra bit of time rather than going straight out and doing it. Because in that time, they are just clearing their mind of all thought. They're just focusing on everything they've got to focus on and they're just getting ready to perform. And when you're performing on stage, that's no time to be thinking about your tax bill or that's no time to be thinking about the row you had with your missus in the afternoon. You're there to do a job and you have to be in a frame of mind to do that job. But snapping back out of it again is as simple as walking backstage, sipping a glass of water and throwing yourself on the sofa. And, you know, you go from, in, in my case, you go from that Manchester accent, um, you know, thanks a lot, man, good night, all the best, see you again, to just walking backstage and go, God, that was all right, wasn't it? What do you think? And uh, we never actually really, sometimes Steve and I, Steve plays Liam, and sometimes we'll we'll stay in character, you know, uh, or we'll stay, up, stay in makeup and dress so that people, if they want to meet us and take pictures with us, fine. But we don't ever keep the accent up. We only ever say, you know, thanks very much, and we'll have a picture. So we we don't play the character backstage. We and I can, you know, I can tell you that if people want a picture taken, and we joke about it backstage when people are backstage and we've got the wig on, I'll make a joke about, you know, I've got you know, got make sure my wig's right or something like that. Um, we come straight out of the character because we're just just the guys behind that, you know. Um, and if, and some people do want a picture and they want to have a bit of fun for you, but we snap out a character pretty quickly and um, and and really, um, it doesn't take long to get into character. We really just get everything on. You just check your wig in the mirror. You make sure everything's right. You make sure your mind's clear. And by the time it goes to, you know, the the time comes to walk out on the stage, you're ready to go, Tom. So, you know, and, and other things that I've done when I played, I've worked with uh, Gary Goodmays and I've played. Uh, the part of or, or the guitar parts for uh, of Brian May for for his Queen tribute, um, Freddie and the Mercury's. Um, but I didn't actually play the part of Brian May. I kind of it was black shirt and trousers, and he's the main. You know, he's the Freddie Mercury. But again, you still have to get yourself in that character. You still have to play a certain way, and you still have to perform a certain way. And there are Brianisms and maybe certain things that he does that that cross over. So little things like that. Um, yeah, really, it's just a case of clearing your mind, leaving everything backstage. Uh, you can always go and check your phone after the show. Nobody's going to need you for that two hours. So snapping into character takes a bit longer. Snapping out of character is an instant thing, unless you're a Michael Jackson tribute and you stay in character for about two hours afterwards. Thank you for your question, Tom. The next question comes from Matt in St Albans. St Albans, I play... Uh, the Gary Baldy in St Albans, a place called the Gary Baldy, which is a great, great venue for me. I love it there. Um, 
obviously this year I haven't played it. I think I played it in January um, of last year. I haven't been there since, but um, I'm going to get onto them and hopefully we'll be able to sort some dates out soon. So if, if you're around, Matt, come and see us. But Matt says, hi, Marcus. Have you ever heard of frontman's syndrome? I heard Keith Richards use the phrase on an interview and now we think our lead singer suffers from it. What are your thoughts? Um, Matt, not only have I heard of it, I think I've had it, mate. I think frontman syndrome um, is basically that you feel or you, you consider that because you're the front man, everything stops with you. Every good show is, is because of you. And it maybe every bad show is uh, the whole thing becomes your responsibility. But apart from anything else, it's a complete and utter um, loss of all control when it comes to ego. Um, and you feel that the whole thing revolves around you. I think also it's a tendency to take things personally as well if a show doesn't go well you feel that you didn't perform to the best of your ability and therefore the show suffered because of it. I don't, I think it's the, um, it's the, the no eye in team thing. And I think as a front man, you can lose control a little bit and, and you feel like because you're the guy in the spotlight and because you're the one who's talking and you're the one who's the main uh, focus of attention, or at least you think you are, um, then it can happen and you can lose control and that, and that manifests itself in rehearsals where your idea is the best way, your songs are the best and you find yourself saying things when somebody asks you what sort of band you're in and you find yourself saying things like, oh, yeah, we're going to be the next best thing, we're, we're going to be the next big thing and to be honest with you, Matt, you might have heard some of these expressions from your lead singer but yeah, it's I've heard of it and it's not, it goes away. Matt, um, it goes away. It's really um, a part that the front man plays, and what happens is being the person that they have to be in order to front the band spills over backstage as well, and they become the same person off stage as they are on stage. But that, I, I promise you, mate, if you've been friends for years, then you know it'll work itself out. But um, you just have to you have to kind of get them on a neutral ground. You have to call a band meeting and all have a coffee and then everybody gets an opportunity to talk about something. But if you get them always when it's to do with music, if you try and talk to them after a show or before a show, they there's no way. They just, you know, we'll have a good one tonight. And and it, it's an ego. It's a, it's a loss of control over your ego. And your ego starts to... Um, get out of control and that's okay if you're fronting a band and if you're in front of an audience and you're trying to get people to jump up and down and get into it and stuff like that you're playing that part and when you're on stage it's it's not okay but if you're on stage and you sort of go this song's the next you know this this song's gonna be the next biggest hit people take that as a you know that that, that kind of divides an audience so if you're up there saying this song's gonna be the best thing you've ever heard some people take it as a sarcastic thing. Some people take it as that. And as a front man, you deal with so many different conflicting opinions of yourself or of you. Um, but your opinion of you is that you're the best that you can be. And I think some people, rather than being confident, rather than being uh, having self-belief, use the ego to keep themselves above water because they, they hide the vulnerability behind it. Frontman syndrome is common as you like. 
it's as common as you know amps and guitars there's lots of front men out there that honestly don't think that this band would ever be the same if they left and you know what some of them are right um and also it doesn't it, it can cross over into guitar players as well and drummers who you know you can have you can have guitar players syndrome where they just play a solo and then five minutes later they're still playing and you wonder what the hell's going on it's just because they they're too busy getting into it and enjoying themselves too much music's a team effort you want to get out there and you want to you want to do it's all very well we know that Ronaldo could do 20, 200 keepy ups but if he does it in a corner and he wastes five minutes the manager's going to kick his backside when he gets him off the off the pitch so it's, it's about playing for the team. And it's great to have that flair. It's great to have that ability. It's great to have that ego. It's great to have that confidence, that presence, that stage energy. But if it ends up backstage as well, and over a coffee they're telling you how great they are, that's front man's syndrome, Matt. And i got to say, I don't think, if you ask people around me, that I've got it anymore. But I have kind of had it. And it got me through and it kept me focused on the music but looking back on it now I wish I'd have been nicer when I was younger I didn't lose any friends because of it fortunately they stayed with me and they understood it was a part that I played but um yeah it's as common as you like and uh he'll get over himself so don't worry about that or they'll get over themselves don't don't even let it worry you at the moment you probably got six months before you play together again properly anyway. So let's see what happens over that. But I wish you all the best. Stay in touch and let me know what's happening. Need help setting up your own home studio? Why not book a consultation online? Here at Innovation Studios, we can help and advise on the best equipment for you, your ideas, your budget and your space. Maybe even book a home visit. We can help you set up, install and use your software, offering a recording workshop in your very own studio in your very own home, going through techniques and offering advice and guidance to get you up and running. Go to www.innovationstudios.com for further information. And next question is Peter from Thundersley. Hi, Marcus. I've recently made the transition from violin to mandolin. I wondered if... I've been told that the two are very similar. I wondered what your thoughts were. Um, yeah, they are similar, apparently. Um, mandolin and, and violin are tuned the same way and played the same way. Of course, um, you, you will find that the steel strings are so much harder to play and, and will take a little bit more effort to push them down. And that's speaking for somebody, by the way, who has never played the violin. Um, I just know a little bit about it, but I've never played it. As a matter of fact, I bought a violin. My brother bought me a violin years ago for a birthday present. Said, you know, Mark, you can play anything with strings on it. This Jerry gets on with a violin. And I had this violin and um, I had it for about a week and, and I couldn't get a tune out of it. All I could get with this, was this kind of sound out of it whenever I dragged the bow. And um, I rang the shop where it came, where it uh, had been bought from. Um, it's not there anymore, but some of you may remember M&J's Music in Basildon. Great, great music shop, and I, and I miss it terribly. Um, and I rang them and I said, I've got this violin and I can't get a tune out of it. And I said, well, have you tuned it in? I said, no, it's not that. I can't get any sound out of the bow. 
And they said, have you got any resin? And I said, no, I've got any resin. So they said, well, that's it. That's how it's done. You have to put resin on the bow and it drags across. So I went down there, took a trip down there, uh, picked up some resin, got it home, rubbed it on the bow and sounded like a screeching cat for about three days and put the put the thing in the cupboard. I don't think it ever came out again. But um, yeah, I mean, mandolin and violin, you can still play. If you're playing... Um, little fiddle things like maybe Cripple Creek or you're playing um, things like The Lark or you're playing things um, like there's a, I think there's a couple of little exercises. You can play in your scales and stuff like that. That all transfers over. But of course you are plucking a string with a plectrum rather than dragging a bow across it. So you might find that if you're trying to get a minimum, if you're trying to get a two beat note or a three beat note, um, or uh, you know a semi-brief, four-beat note. You're trying to get that out of a bow. You can drag it across, but with a plectrum, you've got to hit it hard and let it ring for that four beats. That's the that's the difference. Um, a bow is kind of consistent in terms of it's dragged across the string, and you know if you've got a longer note, you've got to drag it further. And the the, the big difference is that on a violin. The note, the volume of the note is consistent, whereas on a mandolin, you've got to hit it harder to get those four beats or two beats out of it. So you get the initial power of it, and then you've got to hold maybe with a little bit of um, vibrato if you can, but it doesn't always work so well on mandolin because it's such a small instrument to get any movement for vibrato. Um, but mandolin pieces or violin pieces can can be transferred to mandolin and can still be effective if they're little uh, folk dances or, or uh, Gaelic waltz, which is another little piece. They can all be uh, transferred over from um, a violin to a mandolin. So if you play a violin, uh, in Peter's case, he goes on to say that he had a frozen shoulder, which made him made it very difficult to keep the violin up with his left hand. Um, put it under a chin and he said he couldn't move it so by playing the mandolin he can still play these tunes but obviously it's on a different instrument and it's a different sound um, but a transition as you'll find Peter is that you just can still play what you've always played and your left hand will always do the same thing it just need a little bit more effort to push the string down um, and then the right hand has got to be busier you get used to you have to hit a string a bit harder pluck a string a bit harder get it to ring for longer rather than dragging a bow across so that's what can happen there. But um, also, I mean, you can't play chords on a violin, but you can play chords on a mandolin. So there are things that you can do when you're practicing. You can um, play along with a, a metronome and play along with um, maybe even you can you can get some software these days. It doesn't cost you an arm and a leg, USB microphone and a couple of free programs like Audacity or something. And you can record yourself playing the chords for these pieces and then record yourself or just play along the uh, melody line over the top. I think um, from a learning point of view, it's always good if you're able to layer what you learn in as much as if you understand that if you can play chords on a mandolin, play some chords on a mandolin, create a backing track that you could, you can then play a melody on over the top. And then you're playing at somebody else's time. And once you start playing on somebody else's time or somebody else's tempo, that won't wait for you. So you start to learn in a different way and it makes you improve because otherwise you get left behind. So it makes you improve. It makes you um, 
get better because otherwise, you know, you're playing at your own tempo in your room and if you miss a beat, it doesn't matter. So try a metronome um, and try and play together. Maybe you create some backing tracks of your own, but also you're creating something. You're, you've got, if you make a CD or some recordings of yourself playing, then you're listening to yourself uh, in the third person. You're stepping away from what you're doing and that's always a good thing as well to be able to critique yourself. The thing when I'm working with singers is the most important thing you've got to be able to hear yourself and listen and, and not just press play and then hide behind the sofa until the song's over and then ask me what I think. You've got to sit there and you've got to, you know, tough it out, listen to your voice. Um, but yeah, I, I digress a little bit, Peter, which I am want to do many, many times. But um, the transition from violin to mandolin is quite possible and you can have quite a lot of enjoyment with that. So good luck, Peter. All the best. Our next question comes from Lisa in Great Wakerin. Oh, goodness me. I've played there a few times up towards uh, towards South End and Shoebury, isn't it? Up on the left there. Um, Lisa from Great Wakering says, Can you advise on basic settings for my vocal PA? I have been told a few times that my sound could be better and it's a bit bassy, but I don't really understand what all the clever buttons do. <laughs> so I set them all at 12 o'clock and hope for the best. Can you advise, please? All the best. Happy New Year, Lisa. Um, well, yeah, re- really, it's... Um, I don't know what PA you use, but any any musical thing. Um, sometimes it isn't necessarily that the PA is bassy. Sometimes it might just be that the track that you're plugging into is bassy. Now, I'm assuming, uh, Lisa, if you're performing these days, that you're probably using... Uh, your phone or a tablet with your songs on which means you're coming out of that and you're probably coming into from a a single jack socket into an auxiliary left and right which then goes into your desk so you have to be careful the thing the thing to remember with with PAs is that if you take a simple PA um, that you are able to understand what channel things go in and how you can adjust the volume on that channel without adjusting the overall volume you'd be amazed by how many people continue to play whole shows by just having a vocal and a backing track and then using the master volume to control the output which means that there are times if the song is too loud they turn the whole PA down which of course takes the microphone down as well and then they wonder why, you know, they're singing twice as hard or, or sometimes the track isn't loud enough so they crank the master volume up and then all of a sudden they're getting feedback from the microphone or they've got to have the microphone about two feet away from their voice. Lisa, I've seen it all. Um, I would say set your master volume at maybe about 12 o'clock and then on each of your individual uh, settings, I said female vocal sometimes usually... You've got uh, three things. There's usually a high setting, there's usually a mid setting, and there's usually a uh, bass set or a low setting. So there's a high, a mid, and a low. And if your music is too bassy or your vocal is too bassy, then roll off the low on uh, both of those channels. Don't ro- roll off the low of the whole thing, would be my advice. Because... Um, it just means that each individual channel that you use can be tweaked. So sometimes female vocal as well. Um, it's a case of sometimes 
the, the, the male vocal sometimes has less bass because we have a deeper voice, so there it comes across. So female vocal, in my opinion, has always been um, something like the high at 12 o'clock, um, the mid at 12 o'clock, or maybe actually the high at maybe about 11 o'clock. Just take a little bit of the top end off if you've got a higher registered voice, a higher voice, which you will have if you're a female. So maybe set your high to about 11 o'clock, leave your mid in the morning, in the middle, I should say, <laughs> leave your mid in the middle, and then your low, just turn that down to about 10 o'clock on your vocal. And then on your backing track, leave the high at 12 o'clock, leave the mid at 12 o'clock, and just take a little bit off the low, move it to about 11. Some PAs only have high and low, but if you're told you're too bassy, then the low has to be dropped. Don't add more and more high because the bass will still be there. Does that make sense? Hopefully it does. Let me know. But um, at the moment, Lisa, I'd imagine you're probably not gigging like the most of us. So um, if you get an opportunity to practice, practice it. But roll the low off. That's all you've got to do. Things like reverbs and stuff like that. You, you've got to do it. You've got to learn about it. But the other thing is just take a bit of time sometimes. It, the, the, some of the PAs these days, you can set them up in your living room. And just not, you know, don't crank them up, turn the master volume down, but you can just learn how to how to use the buttons. There's plenty of tuition and things like that on YouTube and plenty of things you can learn. But if you're too bassy, then, um, you know, just roll the roll the bass, the low end, what they call a low. There's things you say in this in this business can I have a bit more top, which is high treble, can I have a bit more mid, you know, can I have a bit more boom, can I have a bit more low. So, um, base, you know, in that in that case, just roll those off. But it's important that when you're playing your shows, keep the the master volume at a nice solid level, and get the get the sound of your microphone right, and leave that with the master. And then, if the track is too loud, turn just the track down. Don't start messing about with the master. That's I know it sounds sounds simple, and you may or may not be doing it. It might be that sometimes it might just be that your speakers. Maybe the, maybe you're putting them on a table. Maybe you're sitting them on the floor, and you might be rolling the the, the bass off. But your speakers are still bassy because of where they they are. So if they are on stands, and I'm assuming that they are, then roll the low off of the channels. Don't just turn the master down. But most of all, Lisa, good luck with it, mate. And I'm sure you'll be fine. It's it takes a while to learn, but uh, once you know how to do it, you'll wonder how you ever struggled. I promise you. Our next question comes from Danny. Hi, Marcus. I'm learning guitar. I just wondered how much should I practice? Um, if you're a beginner, Danny, 15, 20 minutes a day, I think um, when it's going well, maybe do a bit more. But if it's in the very early stages, th these are the, are the times when you're more likely to go down uh, the wrong path in terms of making mistakes and then keeping them. So what I mean by that is if you're doing a strum pattern wrong and you're only practicing for f uh, 15 minutes a day, then um, that's a lot easier to fix than if you're practicing for an hour a day. So if you came to see me on the Monday and then I didn't see you until the following Monday, if you've been practicing for two hours a day, that's 14 hours of potentially doing the wrong thing. So in order to keep things safe and in order to keep things moving forwards, I think always think about keeping your arm in in the early 
early days because uh, that for every, everything you get right, there's something you'll get wrong. Um, and that doesn't change at all levels, but particularly when it's very early, um, you only really want to be practicing a little bit every day. But it's, it's not like you can look at it and say, well, if I practice for four hours on Monday, then I don't have to practice Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday because I've done an hour and that's 15 minutes a day. It doesn't work like that. You've got to do the 15 minutes a day because you have to pick it up, dust yourself off, play what you've got to play and do what you've got to do. But there are some days where you might want to, it's going okay and you might want to do 20 minutes. And there are some days where it's not really working out and you've got to do, you only really want to do 10 minutes. If you feel like um, you really can't grasp something, then just do 10 minutes a day just to make sure or just practice a few chords. You know, but there's there's no real right or wrong answer. People would probably argue that if you spent 24 hours learning an instrument, you'd have mastered it by the next day. But I don't think it's as simple as that. I think if you're learning an apprenticeship or if you get a new job, your first shift when you get a new job is just seven hours. They don't take you in at Monday at nine o'clock and you're still there by Wednesday at nine o'clock and you've done 48 hours, but learned everything you're ever going to learn and you're now a fully qualified apprentice. You have to do it by a few hours every day, a task at a time, a little thing here and there. So it's more important that you're moving along day by day than in terms of hours. It's not like homework or writing something or creating something where you think I can write two hours now and have tomorrow off. It's That's not how it works. Uh, so to be honest with you, Danny, just try and do 15 minutes a day. Pick it up, have a strum, have a play, see how it goes. If it's sounding good, keep going. If it doesn't sound so good, just keep going, do your 15 minutes and, and leave it. But you'll find that uh, on an average week, you might come in on the Monday and struggle. You might come in on the Tuesday and have it right. You might come in on a Wednesday full of confidence because the Tuesday was good and the Wednesday sucks um, and you feel like you're back at square one again. That's why. So it doesn't become too frustrating. 15 minutes a day, mate. That's that's my advice, Danny. But um, I wish you well, mate. And I don't know who, who you're having lessons with, but um, I'm sure they'll be great. And if there's anything you need from me or us at Innovation Studios, just drop me another email and let me know how you're getting on. Thanks for your question, Danny. All the best. Ever wanted to play guitar? 10-minute tutorials. Now on YouTube, Beginner's Guitar. Marcus takes you through the early stages, tuning, basic chords, and strum patterns to start you on your journey. Further information, go to www.innovationstudios.com. Rob would like to know, is there anything best avoided when you're first learning an instrument, such as songs to avoid or techniques that are beyond the beginner? Um, you kind of answered your own question, Rob. Um, if there are techniques that are beyond the beginner, then you're probably looking at the wrong course or you're looking at the wrong stuff. But um, I think it's fairly, it's fairly obvious that if you're trying to learn guitar, you obviously don't expect to um, straight away being able to, to play Stairway to Heaven from start to finish. You know you've got to work for that. 
Um, I think the things to avoid most are not necessarily songs, but I think the things to avoid most are you're over-practicing and also um, trying to keep reminding yourself that this is a marathon. It isn't a sprint. You're not going to learn to do these things in a day. It's going to take weeks, months and years to perfect um, even the some of the simplest things that are played. Um, I was working with somebody this morning and we were playing uh, Guitar Tango by The Shadows, which is a wonderful piece of music. But it, it's taken me years to get even close to sounding anything like it. And even now, you know, if you put me up against Hank, I still sort of go, well, Hank's slightly better than I am, you know. Well, of course he is. Uh, he's a legend. But um, the thing to avoid, Rob, is that you don't try and run before you can walk. I think it's better to be able to do something slowly and build up to it um, rather than, you know, trying to trying to throw yourself straight in the pool. In, in the terms of instrument, you're really looking to dip your toe in the water, see what the temperature's like, go out a little bit, go out a little bit further the next day, a little bit further the next week, a little bit further the next month, and uh, gradually build it. In terms of songs to avoid, no, not really. I think um, there are songs that can fool you in as much as you'll listen to something and you'll say, that sounds easy. And then when you write it down or you see it written down or you try to play it, you realise just how blooming difficult it is. So that's, you know, the thing to avoid is, um, you know, you need to keep an open mind on it. And also, um, I just think it's a case of you have to build the foundation first. And if you're learning an instrument, it's not really about playing songs for the first month. It's about moving the chords around. It's about learning how to tune it. It's about, you know, uh, the, the the silly things. You know, you put your guitar down, you go make a cup of tea, the dog knocks it over, you walk straight in, you've got to know how to pick it up and tune it in seconds. It's getting the solid foundation. Uh, and that's the thing, Rob. It's It's making sure that you're familiar with your instrument and how it works. Um, but that's all. There's nothing to avoid, really, other than just the obvious. If something sounds difficult, it probably is. Um, and if something sounds easy, it probably is more difficult than you think it is. So the thing to avoid is complacency. The thing to avoid is overconfidence. And the thing to avoid is trying to run before you can walk. I've, I've taught a lot of people for a lot of years, and I've worked with many young young people who just want to rock out and they realize that once they played a few g's with me and a few this isn't what they thought it was going to be but if they if they get through that difficult first six four you know four to six weeks then they get what they wanted then they'll learn about power chords then they'll learn about other things and be able to play some of the songs so things to avoid is not turning up for your first lesson and saying, I've written a list of 50 songs that I want to learn. Um, you don't, that won't happen for a month. Be prepared to work at the most boring things. Kieran, who produces this show and is uh, an absolute whiz kid when it comes to putting things together and you know editing and stuff like that, is a, a, a an exceptionally talented young man. 
great guitar player, you know, solid singer, good performer. But he puts himself through the most rigorous um, rehearsal techniques. He, he, he wants to work on his scales and still do all of those things. That I'd be honest, I, I, I can't put myself through that. He has an unbelievable work ethic when it comes to playing the most basic stuff. And actually, his playing is better because of it. So maybe he's right and I'm wrong or, you know, um, incredible uh, dedication to learning the foundations. And if you learn it, you have a solid foundation, unbelievable where it can take you. So, um, you know, don't 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 ever try and play something and just just be prepared to work at the most boring, monotonous stuff or that appears to be boring and monotonous but in the end, it will improve everything, Rob. Last question. Kayla. Kayla says, Hi, Marcus. Will you tell my band members to smarten up, please, as they're often playing shows in trainers, T-shirts, and jogging bottoms? <laughs> yeah. Um, I think this is tongue-in-cheek, to be fair, but um, I've, met, I've worked with a lot of musicians over the years who would turn up, and they were some of the greatest musicians I ever heard at this level. And they would turn up in a T-shirt, a pair of trainers, jogging bottoms. You know, this is on a Saturday night. Um, and I always feel that although you're not necessarily playing Wembley Arena or Wembley Stadium, I, th- I still think that you, that, you should, that you should do the appropriate things and you should look like you're the star. I think I read a thing about Billy Connolly recently and he said, he used to turn up in jeans and a T-shirt and people would ask. And so it was like, do you know when the act is getting here? And in the end, he decided that he was going to wear things that suggested that he was the act. As soon as he walked in, nobody would be in any doubt at all that he was a performer. And I always think, and I had a rant at the Wall to Wall Boys more than once about we're on that stage. We're, you know, as far as everybody's concerned, we're, we're mixing and we're performing with the likes of... Jerry and the Pacemakers, God rest him, and the Trogs, and these people who have been around for years, and they're not turning up in jogging bottoms and T-shirts. They're wearing suits. They look presentable. They look like rock stars or pop stars or rock and roll stars. So I always felt that, as a band, it the, 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 simple, the simplest way to put it, uh, Kayla, is um, Steve Davis or Stephen Hendry or Ronnie O'Sullivan comes to your snooker club. And you get to play him. Now, I think that most people, if you were if you were invited to play him, you would wear a waistcoat and a bow tie and a pair of trousers. Even though it's in your club, even though it doesn't matter, if you're a serious player or you're serious about what you do, you would wear something that would suggest that you were respecting uh, yourself and the... Uh, and the game. And with music, I always feel, although musicians can kind of wear what they do, what they want to wear, and there's no rule, I think you should look like musicians. You you wouldn't get people, you know, a lot of musicians, you, you wouldn't get the Rolling Stones, although, although technically the Rolling Stones do turn up in sneakers and jeans and a baggy shirt. They look like stars. This isn't a, This isn't a pair of joggers and you know they're not they're not dressed like the sale at sports direct they you know it's i think that you have to 
look like you are the act. If, if you walk in somewhere, then you should look or at least feel like people know you're the performer. Now, I'm not saying you walk in, you know, I'm sure JK doesn't walk in in his hat. And I'm sure Freddie Mercury wouldn't have walked into a pub in his yellow jacket. But they would have walked in with a certain way about them and they would have walked in like they were, you know, uh, presentable, like they were the performer. And if you work in the city, you better wear a suit. Or, or if you, you know, if you're a receptionist, you want to you look, you have to look nice. And if you're a musician, I don't think you should look like you just stepped off of the squash court. I think that you should look like you're there to go to work. And if you're there to go to work, you don't have to wear suits, but you do have to wear maybe a pair of jeans instead of a pair of jogging bottoms. Maybe a pair of shoes instead of a pair of trainers. Maybe a a shirt instead of a t-shirt. Just something that, you know, visually makes you look a little bit more presentable. But, you know, that's that's my opinion, as is everything with these things. Um, I've had fun again, and I'll tell you what, we're coming up to the 40-minute mark again. So, um, wow, thank you for your, for your questions. That's it from me this week. Thank you for listening. Keep subscribing. Keep sending your questions in. Keep going to the website. Keep safe. Keep healthy. And uh, that's me. I'm out of here. Yours in music. I'm signing off. I'll see you again soon. God bless. Bye-bye.